0: Welcome to a non-fiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff, I'm the author, and this is Dedication, Building the Seattle Branches of Mary Baker Eddy's Church, a Centennial Story. Episode 18, Seismic Disturbance Anna Friendlich, in her article, Church Building in Christian Science, wrote that besides the surprise and wonder, the first appearing of a Christian science church also creates a seismic disturbance in the mental and moral realm. It shakes established beliefs, faiths, doctrines, traditions, institutions. So it did in Seattle. With the appearance of the first edifice for First Church of Christ Scientist, Christian science became more visible in the city skyline. It also became more visible in the local newspapers. The other Christian churches noticed, and their clergy were starting to speak more publicly about Christian science and its founder, Rev. Mary Baker Eddy. As the joint activities for Christian science outreach were ramping up, And as the huge stone temple on Capitol Hill was nearing completion, local Christian leaders launched a major effort to encourage a greater fellowship among Christians. Nine Protestant denominations came together to discuss ideas for cooperation. The effort culminated in a great series of unity revival services organized by the four largest downtown churches for the weeks leading up to Easter Sunday 1914. It was a movement significant enough to warrant special mention by Clarence B. Bagley in his History of Seattle. To advertise the revival meetings, the leaders planned a variety of attention-getting features to attract the general public. They placed advertisements in the newspaper. They used balloons and banners. They put flyers on the windows of automobiles parked downtown. A music band marched through the streets to summon the people to church. The Christian science churches were not invited to the Christian unity meetings. The focus for the interdenominational audience at the first big unity meetings was fierce denunciation of Christian science. A sermon by Rev. Dr. Mark Allison Matthews, D.D., was the most newsworthy part of one of the first events. Vaguely described the Rev. Dr. Matthews as one of the most eminent representatives of the clergy in the United States, who, since coming to Seattle in 1902, had built up First Presbyterian Church into the largest membership of any Presbyterian congregation in the United States. One Seattle Times reporter covering the series described Rev. Matthews as a vitriolic-tongued Georgian who held audiences spellbound, a forceful, well-nigh-hypnotic speaker. For years, Matthew had been publicly speaking out against the new movement, conveying his disparaging tone in print through parenthetical question marks. Christian? Science? Religion so called. He referred to it as Eddyism, and statements of healing by the Edieites as exaggerated and false. Besides discouraging people from seeking cure of disease from Christian science practitioners, Matthews emphasized that in Christian homes, women should focus on raising large families. He declared that Christianity is strong and masculine, not weak and effeminate. The most manly principle ever espoused or taught Christian science had done so much to blacken society and damage the home and virtue. It was branded by the speaker as blasphemous, immoral, licentious, and murderous, and was held up in the most scathing terms as one of the most infamous influences arresting the development of the Orthodox Church. According to Matthews, Mrs. Mary Baker G. Eddy's teachings Denied every principle upon which the hope of salvation rests. He advised Hold to your Bible and leave alone that which pretends to be a key to it, but which is immoral and born in licentiousness. Reverend Matthews' words of denunciation in the Seattle Times received a swift response from John M. Henderson in a letter to the editor. Mr. Henderson shared that he grew up in the same denomination as Matthews and had also attended divinity school. He, too, had once ridiculed and criticized Christian science. But after facing a death sentence from his doctor and failing to receive any benefit from the prayers of his friends and family in the Orthodox Church, as a last resort and under protest, a Christian science practitioner was called. He was quickly restored to health. Now, not only did Mr. Henderson identify as a Christian scientist, he publicly defended Christian science in his role as Committee on Publication for the State of Washington. Henderson had some strong words for Matthews. The Pharisees were orthodox, and they cried out against Jesus. Even though his teaching was everywhere supplanting sin and suffering and sorrow— with joy and peace, health and holiness. The same mental habit obtains in our own day, and it is therefore easily explainable why it is difficult for one whose mind is absorbed in the effort to win the world to certain creedal annunciations to see good in Christian science, even though the elevating and purifying influences of this science are as present in every community. As the sunshine. Notwithstanding the message of Henderson's protest letter, the Unity Revival meetings continued over the next two weeks, with nightly sessions at the First Methodist Episcopal Church edifice, which, ironically, was designed by an architect who was a Christian scientist. The Seattle Times gave the events the leading headlines on the religion page of the newspaper day after day. Great Unity Revival series will open this evening, and similar promotional messages in extra-large lettering spanned the full width of the page above the news articles detailing every session. Large photograph portraits of all the participating pastors were published, as well as artist sketches of each of the pastors in action at the events striking dramatic gestures as they addressed attentive audiences. Rev. Ralph Adkinson, acknowledged to be the foremost leader of revival music in the country, promised a monster choir composed of the best voices from the four churches participating, Presbyterian, Baptist, Congregational, and Methodist Episcopal. The events received an extraordinary level of publicity, in every way far beyond the small notices, usually at the bottom of the page, given by the Times to Christian Science lectures. But despite the hype, according to reporter John Evans, the actual events did not quite achieve expectations. The beginning of the series was far from auspicious. The audience was less in number than the average attendance at the downtown churches on the glorious Sunday nights in summer, when the lakes and the islands call more loudly than the hard-backed pews. The pledged choir of one hundred voices dwindled to a dozen. What was lost in numbers, however, was made up in enthusiasm. Every individual had sung as though life and future hung in the balance, dependent on volume of sound and intentness of purpose. At the second meeting of the series, the audience size was a considerable improvement over the numbers present on the opening night. Even so, at the close of the evening, the audience was awakened rudely by Reverend Matthews. Matthews, his eye searching accusingly, aimed his fingers at those attending until they quivered and wriggled uncomfortably. The audience received a harsh scolding. You are expected to go back to your homes and your churches and your stores and banks and factories and shops and talk to men about Christ and bring them here. As to the next revival event, if it is not packed, he told them, it will be evidence that you went home and went to sleep. The revival pastors wanted to light fireworks in hearts with the gospel, to shake the city like an earthquake. Even with the new recruitment effort, after the first week, turnout was disappointing. Revival leaders added a series of noontime events at the Orpheum Theater and shared that there was something special happening at these meetings. The very atmosphere seemed surcharged and electrified with the presence of a divine power. It was reported in the Seattle Times. The meetings were sure to be packed by the end of the series. However, if they ever achieved this goal, it did not make the news. Further reporting on the revival meetings was eclipsed by standard notices about upcoming Easter services throughout the city. Around this time, in an internationally syndicated column that was published in the Seattle Star, Pastor Russell often discussed Christian science. He considered it to be promoted by the adversary Satan with a view to confusing the people and leading them away from the truth. Around this time, Pastor Russell wrote a series of articles denouncing Mary Baker Eddy's teachings. In his article, Christian Science, Is It Reasonable? He wrote, The growth of Christian science has astonished the world. Its teachings appeal to a very intelligent, well-to-do class of people of considerable mental independence. The physical healings of either themselves or their friends seems to have been more or less associated with their conversion to their cult. Their realization of the cure brought them the conviction that there is a supernatural power outside of man and aroused a religious sentiment such as they had never known before. It seems to them that they have started a new life. Let us give Mrs. Eddy credit for desiring to be logical. But let us notice that her language was confusing when she said, there is no death, no sickness, no pain. But since Mrs. Eddy and Christian Science fail to recognize and state these facts clearly, it follows that, however attractive her teachings may be to some people, they cannot be relied upon because they are off the true foundation, recognizing neither the facts of sin and death nor the necessity for redemption therefrom by Jesus' sacrifice or for the coming restitution. Russell made the case that Christian science was in conflict with the Bible, and the fact that Mother Eddie had succumbed to death proved that her theories had failed to the highest degree. There were other ways Christian science was getting negative publicity. The Seattle Star, a paper that at this time tended towards sensationalism and seemed especially hostile to Christian science, printed an extra-large headline on the front page about a woman healer, a reader at a Christian science church, and leader of that cult, who was associated with disruptive events—the discharge of a gun, a divorce suit, and rumors of infidelity. The facts printed in the article were based on assumptions about circumstantial evidence but suggested reason to be suspicious of Christian scientists. Other headlines in Seattle newspapers told of public officials and legislators in other states working to outlaw the professional practice of Christian science healing. The Christian scientists in Seattle might have found comfort in Rev. Mary Baker Eddy's dedication letter to First Church of Christ Scientist in Atlanta, Georgia. As reported by the Boston Globe, This church that erected the first Christian science edifice in the southern states had been attacked by pulpit and press, and openly expressed opposition accompanied every step made by the scientists in the direction of their new church. This church had been growing rapidly when Reverend Matthews was living in Georgia. To this embattled church, for the dedication of their Georgia Granite edifice in 1898 on Easter Sunday, Rev. Eddy wrote, Be patient towards persecution. Injustice has not a tithe of the power of justice. Your enemies will advertise for you. Christian science is spreading steadily throughout the world. Persecution is the weakness of tyrants engendered by their fear, and love will cast it out. Continue steadfast in love and good works. Children of light, you are not children of darkness. Let your light shine. Keep in mind the foundations of Christian science. One God and one Christ. Keep personality out of sight, and Christ's blessed are ye will seal your apostleship. The enemies of Christian science in Seattle did advertise for them. Even with all the negative publicity, new people continued to embrace Christian science. Orison OJC Dutton exemplified this. Mr. Dutton was well-known in Seattle, Besides his work as a real estate agent and investor involved with many different civic organizations, he had run for public office and was a friend of the former mayor of Seattle. He and his wife had recently spent two months in Yellowstone National Park with the former mayor and an entourage of other members of Seattle society. Mr. Dutton had been an active Episcopalian, one of the vestrymen at St. Mark's Parish, which at that time had a church on First Hill at Seneca and Broadway. He told his story while introducing a Christian science lecturer at the Hippodrome in April 1914, just after the conclusion of the Great Unity Revival meetings. For many years I was a scoffer at what I understood Christian science to be, and had I been told ten years ago that someday I should make remarks in public in favor of this subject, I would have replied emphatically, never, not I. About five years ago, I was in attendance at a lecture given in this city by one who claimed to be able to expose the teachings of Mrs. Eddy as false and blasphemous. Dutton may have been referring to the October 13, 1909 free lecture entitled Christian Science Exposed given by celebrated anti-Christian science lecturer Frederick W. Peabody of Boston. Shortly after the foundation was laid for the first church temple at 16th and Denny, the Seattle Times reported that Baptist ministers in Portland were working with medical physicians to prevent further inroads on denominational and professional work by Christian scientists. Their plans included bringing Mr. Peabody to the area, Reverend Matthews hosted and introduced him in Seattle. Peabody called Christian science a new old witchcraft and its founder a charlatan, a heartless, an avaricious despot, pretender, an author of the greatest get-rich-quick concern ever conceived. The Seattle Times called Peabody's lecture a scathing denunciation of Mary Baker G. Eddy, couched in vitriolic terms. But the denunciations did not have the desired effect on Dutton, as he told the Hippodrome audience in 1914. The whole discourse appealed to me as unfair and unjust, tearing down the beliefs of others, giving nothing of comfort or help in their place. I determined then and there to investigate for myself, with the result that every hour of my life is one of gratitude for that decision. In our family of six, many benefits have come to us through the application of the principle of Christian science, and it has been applicable not only in a physical and spiritual way, but in a business way, solving my daily problems, and lifting me out of the bondage of fear and limitation. O.J.C. Dutton and his wife, Pearl, joined a Christian science church and became actively involved in a very public way. The Duttons sent their children to the Principia School, the Christian science boarding school in St. Louis. Mention of the Principia School and the comings and goings of the Duttons between Seattle and St. Louis was regularly reported in the Society page of the Seattle Times over the next few years. Not every local clergyman denounced Christian science entirely. Pastor Rev. E. Tremaine Dunstan at the West Seattle Congregational Church made the news for attempting to be more even-handed in his remarks about Christian science in sermons. As reported in the Seattle Times, in what he called a sermon that will please nobody, he reported the rapid building of hundreds of Christian science churches across the country, some of them cathedral in proportions. As to the spiritual teachings, the pastor said, I have tried to rid my mind of everything in the nature of an unreasoning prejudice against that which is new, and have never taken part in the denunciations of Christian science, which Orthodox preachers have frequently made. Frequently, I have spoken appreciatively of Mrs. Eddy's teachings, and because of this, some of my friends have been just a little fearful as to my position. Reverend Dunstan firmly denied that he had embraced the doctrines of Christian science, but he frankly declared that he found much to admire in the new church. Above all, he expressed appreciation of the influence of Christian science on other Christian churches. It is a spiritual idealism which has leavened the thought of millions of people and has completely changed the lives of the great majority of these. Never since the apostolic days has a religious movement spread so quickly. It has forced men from the old mental ruts, and has helped them to think. And above all, it has helped to restore our faith in the indwelling Christ, who is the source and secret of all power. There has been restored to the church, though partially as yet, that faith in God as a living presence and power, which was the source of the church's early triumphs. Christian scientists believe, and with them now many others, that God has the power to heal the body and to answer prayer today, as in the days of the Lord's appearing. There can be no question that the primitive church accepted Literally, the word of the master, when speaking of his own works of healing, he said, greater works than these shall he do. For centuries, the church, because of its lack of faith, narrowed the scope of that promise to the apostolic age, or explained away its meaning by declaring that the work of God in saving the soul is greater than the work of God in healing the body but we are beginning to understand that we must put no limit to the power of the Almighty if we really believe in a living God. The Christian scientists could hardly have said it better. Reverend Dunstan observed that some neglected truths of Christianity were now being voiced from multitudes of pulpits in the older denominations, but that, It has been too late to stop the exodus of thousands of our most intelligent hearers. One of the most visible ways the new converts to Christian science were publicly putting their newfound trust in the unlimited power of God to the test was in the erection and dedication of church buildings public denunciations, and criticisms of Christian science were not going to put a stop to that work. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.